Well, good morning, church family and actual family. It's good to have everybody here. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, hi, buddy. I made the mistake of um, not changing the front of the bulletin. Hi, bud. You want a hug? I made a mistake of not changing the front of the bulletin, uh, but the inside of the bulletin is right. We're going to be starting in verse 25 today. Uh, last week, we spent, uh, well, we, we talked about God's condemnation of an entire generation, but there is a caveat to the word entire. It wasn't an entire generation, and I categorized it as the ungodly and the hypocrites were who was getting condemned. And it wasn't necessarily clear in the text of why that was, but this week we're actually going to see why that was. Uh, we're also going to see Jesus displaying his heart in, uh, in something that Charles Spurgeon noted as the one place in all of the Bible where the Lord says, this is my heart. So let's go ahead and read. Uh, again, Matthew 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, help us today to listen to you. Help us today to not listen to, to me and what I have to say, but let us hear what you have declared in your word. Be glorified in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice in verse 25 how Jesus uh, has switched from the previous verses. If we were to go back and read, his tone changes. Um, he switches from condemnation to praise. Uh, if we, if we, we hear woe, woe to you city, woe to you city, which is essentially how great is your suffering going to be into Jesus stopping and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is, is saying how grateful he is to his father for something. Right? When we think of being grateful to God for things, uh, usually it's a thing like a health-related matter, right? Um, uh, it, maybe it's a thing we've received or perhaps a new child or grandchild coming into our lives and thank you, Lord, for this thing. It might be, uh, it, we might be grateful, uh, speaking of the health thing, where it's maybe a diseases or cancer, and it's usually us. We're grateful for things that happen to us. Now, don't get me wrong. You and I all pray, you know, thank you, Lord, for Gloria receiving cancer treatment. Thank you, Lord, and please give the, the doctors uh, wisdom and, and in, in the therapy. Let them do what's right. 
Thank you, Lord, that that uh, that one that some families have had healing and had to work through tough things. Thank. We pray for other people, but. But really, let's be honest, most of our prayers are self-focused, right? Even if it's the, the quick, like, guy almost hits you uh, while you're driving and it, you narrowly miss and you're like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Those are prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of gratitude. And when we do those prayers just to have us think a little deeply about it, we're more often like the Pharisee in Luke 18:11, aren't we? The one who says, God, thank you, I'm not like other people. That's just a little bit of conviction. Focus, and at least for myself, because I have to pause. When I, when I say thank you, Lord, especially for a self-focused reason, I start to wonder how much do I care about others. So that's, that's more me preaching to myself than I am to you. Focusing on Jesus' actual praise, though, why he's praising God is still a surprising reason. It still actually still it still has that air of condemnation. Actually, he hasn't completely switched topics yet. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Who 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 has who have these things been hidden from? The wise and the understanding. The, the, the wise could also be translated the comprehending, those that are experienced in life, in practice. And then the understanding can actually also be translated the educated. If there's any sort of person who, would you, who you would expect to not have things hidden from them, it's those who have been educated the best. If somebody comes in and they've got their PhD, you would expect, okay, well, that dude's well-versed. That dude knows what he's talking about. If there is any person who you would expect to be maybe the most tender or kind or helpful in a situation, it's those who have been through the most experiences, right? People who've come out of horrible things, and now, they're, now, now through life experiences, they're more understanding. Isn't that who you would expect to be innately wise and intelligent? the educated and the experienced. But the Lord here in his infinite wisdom has chosen to hide, to darken, to uh, make not visible these things. Now, Jesus doesn't say specifically what these things are. It's kind of an implication. What are these things that he's hiding, that, the, the, that God is hiding from these people? Well, we could actually call it the way of salvation. We could call it the gospel. We could call it biblical truth. We could call it a number of things that are implied here. But ultimately, it is that way of salvation. It's the gospel. The wise and understanding have been made incapable of understanding the way of the gospel. Well, hold on. Shouldn't the Pharisees get it? Yeah, they should. Shouldn't the scribes get it? Yeah, they should but they don't. It's kind of like me and geometry. I don't get geometry. I just simply don't. Somebody can, can give me all the formulas. They can give me all the measurements. They can say, put that number here, put that number here, put that number here. What does it equal? And I'm wrong. 
I can put it through a calculator, and I promise I get it wrong. And I could have, again, that nice, kind person show me very gently how to do it, and you know what happens? I still get it wrong. I, I just do. Geometry, it's hidden from me. <laughs> it's, it's darkened. I just don't get it. I joke that I'm not a numbers guy. I mean that seriously. If it doesn't go into an Excel spreadsheet and, and, and Microsoft do all the hard work for me, I can't be right. Such is the experience of the wise and understanding, Jesus says, in the way of the gospel. It's hidden from them. They can't get it. As Jesus turns his attention from condemnation, he announces who has been given understanding, in contrast to the wise and understanding, right? Uh, who who, who have, have been fully capable of understanding the way of the gospel. Who is it? Who is it? It's the little children. But, uh, but here's the fun part. Little children is actually kind of a bad translation. The, the word that is used here is not just for little children. It's actually more commonly used in Greek literature for nursing babies. Excuse me? Who's been given understanding here? The wise and understanding don't get it, but nursing babies do? Doesn't Jesus know that a successful ministry is built on those with exceptional talent, great public speaking capabilities, uh, those who are courageous and powerful, maybe, maybe really good business-minded uh, individuals that, that they need to be capable the, the people Jesus calls should be capable, right? Perhaps the wise and understanding, the educated. Friends, Jesus is clear right here who he calls. It, the, the, the call of salvation does not go to those who should innately get it. I'm not saying there's not business-minded people who are saved, but I'm saying that by and large, the people who are called are not the worldly wise, it's the nursing babies, the people who are, who are dim-witted, who are challenging and needy. That's who Jesus calls. I could walk through the town and I could find every single person wearing a suit and I could give them the gospel. And frankly, if God called them, that's God's call. But, but... God takes pleasure in hiding the gospel from them and giving it to the people who are drug addicts, giving it to people who are challenging, which by the way, challenging describes me. You all know me in varying degrees and you all know that I am a challenging individual. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, my brother-in-law. Uh, <laughs> I am a challenging individual. I wouldn't call me if my life depended on it. Think about Jesus' apostles. None of them were picked from the A-list. Not a single one of them was, was sitting in the, in the next Pharisee advancement course in the local synagogue. Instead of choosing from the Pharisees, he chose from among the fishermen to be his closest disciples. And this, friends, is who the Lord is. He takes the incapable and is capable for them. He doesn't make them capable. Instead, he takes their deepest problems and redeems it himself. 
He takes those who had presumed to be incapable and lets them be swallowed by their pride into God's judgment. He sends the hypocrite to hell and brings the heavy laden to heaven. For such is the, the Father's gracious will, Jesus says. Such is the Father's good pleasure. Where the ESV translates gracious will, good pleasure is actually a more literal translation. It is the Father's good pleasure to send the educated and intelligent uh, to hell and take the nursing babies and bring them into salvation. So how do we apply this? How, how, do we, how do we think about this? How do we grapple with this understanding? This, this thing that Jesus is very clearly stating. As a negative application, I am honestly astonished when people uh, find it predictable that they would be saved. I grew up in a Christian household. I'm a good person. I'm in awe of people like that and not in a good way. I am fearful for them because they think they can make themselves worthy for God to save them. But I've met people like that, people who are hypocrites in their hearts, who don't acknowledge their own sin, who don't even see a need to repent because they're led by pride, blinded by their own supposed self-worth. But so says Jesus, that's not who he calls. Again, the gospel seems to be more clearly for the drug addicts than the entrepreneurs. It's more for the struggling fishermen, for the scared out-of-work single mother, the depressed alcoholic, the angsty teenager, than for the person who sees themselves as good and worthy. So who does Jesus call? He calls the little children, the, the people that are worthless in this world, the ones that are crybabies. He calls them to salvation. Now, the next two points uh, illustrate this in two different ways. One is the authority of Jesus over salvation. So notice in verse 27, where Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So just to think about that, Jesus is saying, God knows himself. In, in the Trinity, God the Father knows, knows God the Son. God the Son knows God the Father. They are the only ones that fully know each other. And also those whom the Son chooses to reveal. That's the, that's the kicker. Jesus is pointing out that he has full authority to draw whomever he wishes. The Father has given him that authority, but the Father and the Son are always in full agreement. That's the implication there. Um, I'm going to turn this a little bit. Nice. I didn't make a loud noise. In John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In Ephesians 1, 5, we find that the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And here, Jesus is taking that full credit God the Father and God the Son share that full credit. But again, there's no disagreement. There's no argument. Jesus does not argue with God the Father. Can't we save that guy? Can't you just draw him? No, no, that doesn't happen. The Father also doesn't say, hey, you know what? I'm, uh, 
I'm, I'm choosing that one. And Jesus goes, oh, not that one. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I'm here on earth. I know how bad he smells. That doesn't happen. There will be no soul that the two of them argue over. And where, where one wants that soul saved and the other wants the other condemned, that doesn't happen. It's always one wants the one want, uh, The son wants to save someone. The father wants to save that person. They are in perfect agreement. The father has given authority to the son to choose whom to reveal. Or, uh, or actually, that word choose could actually be translated desires. Jesus has not only the authority, but also the desire to bring whom he wants to salvation. This is what we call the doctrine of election, means choosing. The word elect just means choose. Like when you elect an official, it's because of your votes and your ballots, but that's completely different. That's not, that's not it's just we take that word. But, but a, uh, a, portion, a portion of election is expressed here where God is in full agreement with himself on who is saved. Jesus cheerfully announces this authority, the authority to save infants instead of the educated. And this really is important because uh, anybody who's a Christian should be able to ask, ask with surprise, why did God save me? If you don't ask that question, there's a problem. If I were the apostles Peter or John, I'd wonder that. And after seeing Jesus crucified, resurrected, and ascended, after shepherding and planting churches, suffering for the sake of the gospel, I'd wonder, Lord, why? I, I could not get to the end of the life, end of my life, and pridefully go, mm, yeah, God knew what he was doing. And not only for the if I were the apostles, but I wonder that, frankly. For my case. But here I see that the Lord is saying with absolute joy, I desire to choose or I desire to reveal the father to you. I can know that that the Lord desired to save me. That is a glorious truth. It should bring a song to our hearts. If if. Why, why would God save me? Because he wanted to. That, that should make me want to sing with, with great, incredible joy. And that's actually the experience of election. Election is not a dry doctrine. It's supposed to invoke praise. Just like how condemnation evoked Jesus' praise of the Father here. And if you don't know the Lord... And you, you have a sense of him tugging at you that, that you might be wondering, you know, does the Lord desire to save me? Just give up. <laughs> just dive into him. He's not going to let you go. And that, that fighting is just stupidity. Because it's better to surrender to the one who desires to save us than to live in our own sinful, self-righteous, self-glorifying pride. So Jesus has the authority to save whom he wants to save, but what are the requirements to come to Jesus? What are the requirements to go to him? Well, he actually tells us in verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So what are the requirements to go to God? And the English is actually hard here. When we hear the word come, like when I look at, when I look at my dog and say, Lily, 
come. It's a command. It's an imperative. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Come is actually an implication of, of, of his verbiage. What Jesus is, is not saying, or Jesus is not implying the command, he's actually exalting himself. It's not, it's not the how that Jesus is saying, it's the who. He's essentially saying to me, to me, all who labor and are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Kind of like a soldier that's trying to rally those around him saying, to me, come with me. He's trying to rally people. And who is he trying to rally? It's not the wise and understanding. It's the little children among them. Specifically, those who are heavy laden. Those who are burdened. Those who are tired. Those who are imperfect. Those who are suffering, who are struggling. It might be those who are under the burden of the Levitical law, who, who, can't, who look at the law and say, I am imperfect. I have to do sacrifices continually. I, I, can't, I can't live this life. And they're under that burden, that constant, unending feeling of imperfection. That's who Jesus calls. If you know that you're not perfect, Jesus says, come to me. If you know that you are burdened under perfectionism and maybe you're holding yourself to too high of a standard, Jesus calls you. Jesus is saying to me, to me, to me. But remember last week I said it's easy to read these in a whiny tone. You know, come to me, you who are heavy laden and burdened. I'm going to give you rest. Why don't you come to me? That's not how Jesus is saying it. Jesus is announcing. He's saying to me, to me. To Jesus, we must rally when we are burdened and heavy laden. To Jesus, when we feel that, that our labor is, is fruitless, our toil is unending, to Jesus, to Jesus. Now, the rest of our time, I want to spend looking at verse 29 and, uh, and 30. But, but let, let, me, let me give a quick explanation. When, when we start to see Jesus disclosing his heart, when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, what is a yoke? Now, when I first read the Bible, I read yoke, by the way, as an egg yoke. Didn't realize there was a spelling difference. But a yoke was a heavy bar that sat on the shoulders of a beast of burden that connected it to its cart. So sometimes you could have two bulls plowing a field and you had the yoke sitting on both their shoulders and then the, the, the ropes or the rods that connected it to the rest of the equipment. So Jesus here is issuing a command. The come is not a command, it's an implication. But this is a command. You must take the yoke. So notice that Jesus doesn't just remove the yoke and set you free. He doesn't pull a green piece and go and like break all the fences down of a, of, of a farm and say, run sheep, be free. Jesus instead gives a yoke that's easy. We have to be tethered to something. 
If we're going to, if we're going to work and labor and toil, we got to be tethered to something. Work, by the way, biblically is good. Oh man, I, I, you know, honestly, the, every job I had, I'm trying to preach that to myself. This work is good. This work is good. This work is good. Uh, but, but work biblically is good. But toiling in work, like actually working hard and, and exhausting yourself, that's an effect of the fall. That's Genesis 3.19, if you don't believe me. But, but it, it, you, we've got to be tethered to something. Imagine a cruel farmer who untethers his bull, right? Wants to plow the field, takes the yoke off, and he's like, all right, start plowing there, buddy. And then he's dissatisfied when all the bull does is tromp down on the crops. Maybe he starts beating the bull. Maybe he offers the bull up as a sacrifice. Tells the priest, eh, yeah, it's, it's an unblemished one. Or imagine a horseback rider who decides to take the bit and bridle off and then gets mad at the horse when he falls off the saddle. We have to be tethered. If our Lord is going to have us work, then he has us tethered. But he doesn't overburden. He doesn't, he doesn't make labor and uh, he doesn't labor us to the point of being heavy laden. Instead, what does he do? He says that he gives an easy yoke and a light burden. But just backtracking a little bit. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How can you work restfully? How can you do that? That's the sort of work that God calls us to. If we're working to the extent of burnout, to, to just thinking, man, you know, this children's ministry, it's always children's ministry. Children's ministry is just too much for me. I can't take it. Scott's kids are awful. <laughs> if you get to the point of burnout, you're not doing it for the glory of God anymore and you need help. You need to go to Jesus because he will give rest for your souls. But remember that cruel farmer who angrily beats their animals for failing when he's taking the, 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 the tethers off? That's not the heart of Christ. Jesus says it very specifically. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The Christian life is struggle and toil against sin. It's our, it's our own sin. It's, it's sin that attacks us and makes us sin. We, we, we constantly labor against it, but we don't labor to the point of being heavy laden. And again, if we are, we are not working for God's glory. We are working for something else. Jesus does not demand religious perfectionism. He does not demand that we lie about our growth and holiness, where we make ourselves look better than we truly are, how many of us have tried that one? That's the way of the world. Yeah, yeah, Benny, I get it. <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, I'm right there with you, brother. <laughs> no, you're my nephew. Uh, yeah, all right, all right. Let me, re uh, let me rephrase that. I'm right there with you, nephew. The way of the world, the way of the wise and understanding is to always put on a good face, to, to look great, to look perfect, to, to look better in public than they are in private. When their lives are in shambles, the wise and understanding, drinking, their uh, drinking themselves to death or wallowing in their own self-righteousness, 
and and then going out into the world and trying to tell everybody, hey, look at me, how wonderful I am. That's the way of the world. But the heart of Christ allows us to reveal our worst parts, and in his gentleness, he responds. In his lowliness, which means his humility, God humbled. God in a humble estate, he patiently deals with you. He deals with you more patiently than you deal with you. That is the heart of Christ. And what a wonderful heart that is. This is God incarnate, gently and humbly dealing with you. So how do we put this all together? How do we go from the condemnation, the woe announced to these unrepentant cities, to Jesus declaring presumably to the little children around him, to the, to the nursing babies, that he wants us, desires us? How do we put that all together? Well, if you're a person who feels too dirty to be saved, too stained to be loved, too sinful to be redeemed, you are exactly the type of person Jesus has come to. But if you see yourself as a good person, Maybe you, you, you think of yourself as born into Christianity and therefore a Christian you shall be or anything other than your own guilt and sin making you declare yourself a Christian, then you have understood God's heart or you have misunderstood God's heart and need to repent. You're the type of person who is the wise and understanding whom God hides salvation from. So reject it, be, be, turn to Christ in your own humility, in your own sin, in your own depravity, recognizing that you cannot earn salvation, and go to him. What does Jesus want from you? It's your sin and your shame. Jesus wants that. He doesn't want delusions of perfection. Jesus delights in hiding his gospel from the deluded and proud, from the arrogant, from the, from the self-satisfying. But he also takes delight in taking worthless people in this world and covering them with glory, his own glory, his own love. And that, friends, is the heart of God, gentle and lowly, who gives rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that you saved me. I am unendingly grateful. And I love, I love your gospel because of it, because I am not worthy. You wanted to save me, and I, 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 I didn't want to be saved. Yet you did. So, Lord, I'm grateful that I've taken your yoke upon me, that I can have a sense of your heart, your gentleness, and your lowliness. And I'm grateful that I can live in response to it. I'm grateful that I can learn from you. And I pray for all of us here in this room that we would be reminded of that, 
that we would carry that with us, that we would know that in the midst of your judgment and your condemnation, there are people like me who are needy souls. Oh, Lord, am I needy. Who you call, who you save. Let us see those people and bring your gospel to them. May we be instruments of your mercy and your grace in this world that is so self-satisfied that the self-help section of bookstores is the most profitable. Let us speak, speak into that so that we might take the, the, those who labor and are heavy laden and bring them before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen.